Mora conducts physician-led support groups, helping people live healthier, happier lives, free from chronic diseases like diabetes, hypertension, and obesity. And on our podcast, Health and Mora with Dr. Lori Marbus, we bring to you nutrition and lifestyle medicine experts and extraordinary guests to empower and inspire you with their knowledge and stories of plant-based lifestyle so that you can be your healthiest self. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Dr. Lori Marbus, and today I'm excited to welcome a very special guest, Dr. Michelle Tolson. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you for the invitation. Excellent. Well, you have quite a story, one of surviving breast cancer, teaching your lifestyle medicine so much. And on top of that, you were an OB-GYN. Again, one of the, I think the hardest jobs, <laughs> one residency and just taking care of mothers and babies. But let's, I would love to get started with just your history. You, you mentioned how you'd like to start is at the beginning. Yes. Oh, thank you so much. So the first, I would say the first 20 so years of my life, I really was thriving. I grew up eating meals that my mom cooked with ingredients from my dad's garden. I played tennis and I danced. I got enough sleep. I wasn't super stressed and I had a lot of strong connections, some good friends. But then when I went to medical school, that all became so much more difficult Uh, medical school. And then I went in and did a residency or or that obstetrics and gynecology. And so, so my home cooked meals were replaced by cafeteria food. Um, Sometimes we would have meals that were brought in by drug representatives and um, a lot of, a lot of middle night of the night visits to the vending machine, trying to make the healthier choices, but it was hard. And then our cafeteria would actually close overnight. So when I was doing those overnight shifts as an OB-GYN resident, the only thing that was sometimes open was the McDonald's in our hospital basement. So I would join my patients that were pushing their IV poles in line. And I would try to make the healthier choices like the fruit and yogurt parfait or try to make the healthier choices. But still what I was eating was not as nourishing as it had been growing up. I also didn't exercise. I used to say the only time I truly had time to exercise was when I was running to an emergency delivery. I was, I did residency before the 80 hour work week fully went into effect. And so I would often work really long shifts, not sleeping for over 24 hours at a time. I was very stressed and I didn't have a lot of the strong connections that I did when I was growing up. I was connected with my fellow residents and my patients, but it was a hard time. So I would like to say that I was just surviving. I was not thriving. But when I got out of residency, I moved back to Colorado and was really able to focus on thriving again. So I knew I needed to get back to eating healthier. I needed to exercise. I needed to work on my stress and my sleep. And I did But one of the things that surprised me is I hadn't learned a lot about nutrition during medical school or residency. It just wasn't a major part of the curriculum, like for so many of us physicians, especially at that time. And so I started to really dig into the research. And the more that I dug into the research, the more I started to hear the same things, eating more plants, eating less processed food, eating eating less animal products. So I kept hearing those same kind of themes over and over. Also, my husband came from a, some of his relatives in the past were sausage makers. And so, and he grew up in Nebraska eating a lot of meat. And so I wanted, and, but also along with that, his family, not surprisingly had a high incidence of dementia as well as really heart disease very young. So I started to look to see like, what is the best diet for that as well? And everything kept leading me to a whole food plant predominant way of eating. The more I learned, the more excited I got, the more I started to try to learn how to cook new things. I would tell my patients about it. They felt better. I was feeling better. My family was feeling better. It was like we had found a secret superpower in nutrition. I also started exercising more, was feeling better, worked on stress and sleep and all of the different. But I just got really fascinated with diving into the research. And then I started to look at um, about obstetrics and gynecologic related conditions. So PMS and how does nutrition relate to that or menopausal symptoms? How does nutrition and exercise and stress and sleep, how does that relate? So I just kept uncovering all of this literature and was excited, but then at the same time, also disappointed that I had trained for four years just as an OB-GYN and it knew a lot. I knew how to do surgical procedures to do a hysterectomy. I knew what medications to prescribe, but that I had learned so little as well as my peers have learned so little about the power of lifestyle as medicine. So I started to share this, got excited 
and then decided to leave the big busy practice that I was in. I wanted to have more time to really focus on lifestyle as medicine, which as we know, is hard to do in a traditional conventional medicine practice. And so I, I left that and then started teaching at our university, um, Metropolitan State University of Denver, where I'm now a professor. So I started teaching there, lifestyle medicine, fell in love with the literature more and more, volunteered at a nonprofit clinic doing women's health and lifestyle medicine. And I was really thriving, sharing the message. I joined the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. I was a wellness coach. I was all in and feeling as great as I ever had been. I was really thriving again until about three years ago, I got that phone call that no one wants to get that my mammogram was abnormal. I had always had normal mammograms. Obviously I'm a gynecologist. So I did a lot of uh, clinical breast exams myself. I had no significant risk factors. I had nursed my three kids, um, you know, didn't drink a lot of alcohol and I was, was thriving again, but I had a normal mammogram at age 41. At age 42, one year and one week later, I had a two centimeter mass that was hiding behind my nipple and it was invading my chest wall. So even before the biopsy, I couldn't feel it. Before they did the biopsy, I said, let me see, did I miss, you know, I, did I miss something? I could have felt this and I couldn't. It was deep and it was, it was invasive. And so I had a bilateral mastectomy followed by 16 rounds of aggressive chemotherapy. And I've had another surgery to remove my ovaries and I'll have my fifth reconstructive surgery about a month from today and hopefully the last. But I'm so fortunate that it was caught early that I had a great team to support me during that. And so that led me into that surviving once again, but really lifestyle medicine helped me move back to being able to thrive. So I think that that's that, that surviving and thriving and the power of lifestyle medicine to, to really help us at wherever we're at to, to thrive despite whatever's in our way. Mm. Wow. That's quite a story. So three years ago, and could you tell us a little bit about the mindset because you were in this process of taking good care of yourself and thriving in what does that do and how did you overcome that or working through that? That's a great question. So when I initially got that um, got that call and went in, so I, I had the screening mammogram one day, the next day I was able to come in and get the biopsy and, and I was sitting there waiting for the biopsy. The ultrasonographer did the ultrasound and I knew I'd seen the films and I knew it didn't look good. And I thought, why me? Why me? I had done the right things or at least mostly done the right things. You know, I had had exercise and I was I was eating healthy, except for that time during med school and residency where I struggled more. I felt like I've done the right things. And then I thought, why not me? One in eight women will be diagnosed with breast cancer in their lifetime. And so as we know, a healthy lifestyle decreases the chances of getting many of these lifestyle related conditions, but it doesn't fully eliminate it, which I think is an important message too, because I work with a lot of really, really healthy women. And I think sometimes they're, they're more hesitant to get their screenings or do I really need a colonoscopy if I eat all that fiber? Do I really need a mammogram if I'm following all these, all of these practices? And that's where I say, yes, still get your screening because it saved my life. And I, I don't want it to anyone else to be, to be missed. But I, I knew as I was sitting there waiting for the biopsy, I thought if I'm going to fight this, I need to do everything I can to empower myself because people actually walked by as I was waiting. I knew enough people in that area. It was this, the health system where I had worked. And so they were walking by and they said, Michelle, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry because they had seen, they had seen the images too. And, um, and every time I heard, I'm so sorry, even just during that one time, because they were working me in so kind, trying to help me work in and get that biopsy quickly that day. But I waited there and I felt like every time I heard, I'm so sorry, I felt like I shrunk a little bit more and more, or I felt like my power was going away. I felt like, oh my goodness, I'm just, this is horrible. This has happened to me. And I thought, if I'm going to fight this, I need to do something in order to empower myself. So while I was sitting on that table in that ultrasound room, waiting for the interventional radiologist, I ordered some pink tennis shoes. I thought I'm going to get some new pink tennis shoes. And I thought I'm going to start growing my own broccoli sprout. So I ordered like the broccoli sprout growing thing from Amazon. So I was like, I'm just going to go at this and put everything I can into it. I already thought I was pretty healthy, but I thought I'm going just going to do everything I can and empower myself because um, I knew that that was what I was going to need to do in order to move through that. And then I also had, I also feel so fortunate. So that day when I saw the ultrasound before the biopsy results were done, I knew enough to be able to walk over to my cancer center that is in the same complex and to make an appointment with an oncologist. They said, oh, you can wait. And I was like, oh, I, this is not, it's not good. So I made the appointment with the oncologist, but I was also fortunate enough to walk by 
our oncology wellness center, which not everybody has. In fact, so many people don't, but I actually walked by the oncology wellness center that's in the same complex cancer um, center as the oncologist. And I made an appointment with one of the oncology dietitians and the oncology physical therapist and someone who is in that complex that supports um, mental health and emotional health, dealing with a diagnosis like that, that helped me with some of the different sleep problems that all of a sudden developed when I was worried about how was I going to tell my kids who were three, six, and 14 at that time that their mom had cancer and was going to lose all their hair, all my hair. So they had the resources, which I used and fully embraced. And it helped me go through, I believe it helped me get through chemo and the surgeries and everything much, much easier than I would have had I not had those resources. But it also made me frustrated or realized the privilege that I had and how unfair it was that other people, even people who maybe were in that same area, they didn't know about those resources or to hear from all the other breast cancer survivors or cancer survivors who don't have, who didn't have that type of support or knowledge or resources going through active treatment. And then as a survivor, as a breast cancer survivor, I like to say thriver because I, survivor to me just means like you're barely scraping by. And I truly feel like it's been a journey, but I am thriving. I still have neuropathy. I still um, get tired early at night. And there's certain parts of, of that treatment that I'll always have. I have the scars, but I believe I'm doing whatever I can to thrive. But I also know that that's because I have had lifestyle medicine and I've realized how difficult it is for so many people to get access to lifestyle medicine care, to get access to lifestyle medicine knowledge, and who don't live in an environment that really supports lifestyles medicine. So that's why that's my, that's my why. It was my part of my why before, but now my, my why, my passion is really to try to help get lifestyle medicine access and education and then to do whatever I can to support. Because I know it's not just education, it's behavior change and the whole the whole system, but to get that to all breast cancer survivors and thrivers to all cancer survivors and thrivers. But then really, if I start to look at it, it's also for the stroke survivor, right? Or it's for, it's for the caregiver of somebody who has dementia. Like it's, it's all of us have our stories. I have my story, but every person as you know, our patients all have their stories and they all deserve to thrive and for it not to be so hard to access that care. And that's why I'm so thankful for all that you do with your, with your organization to, to get care to the people who need it, um, which I think is all of us. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, I, you know, I'd like to maybe have you give a little bit more in depth of what that means, lifestyle care or lifestyle medicine. And in your case, specifically, you know, if you're looking at the pillars in, in regards to breast cancer or cancer in sure. general, um, because I feel like there's going to be people who either know someone or are dealing with it themselves. And maybe also on the end of that, how that changed for you, because you were doing so much before what, you know, besides the broccoli sprouts, which are very healthy guys, by the way, um, what did you do to improve it even more? Because you're like, I could even go to the next step. What does that look like? Yeah, no, thank you for asking. So as far as nutrition, it was, it was exciting to learn that all that I had learned with the American College of Lifestyle Medicine that a whole food plant predominant diet really does support most people as they're going through um, active treatment and as a cancer survivor. I follow the American Institute for Cancer Research, AICR, and the World Cancer Research Forum, w WCRF, and AICR. I follow their top 10 guidelines, which, which really do emphasize a whole food plant predominant diet and getting enough exercise and avoiding alcohol. So I would encourage people to, to check out their resources because it's very evidence-based, but also as everyone, as somebody goes through cancer treatment, I encourage them to stay in close collaboration with their oncologist as well as I don't know the specifics of everybody's needs nor their dietary needs. So I, I recommend staying in close contact with the, your oncologist, but also finding a dietitian. There are dietitians who specialize in oncology um, oncology and our registered dietitians. So I think that they can be an amazing resource too, as well as physical therapists that have exer that have expertise in oncology and physical therapy. And if you don't have somebody with those areas of expertise with those combined, then maybe just reaching out to any physical therapist or asking your oncologist to learn more. There's also exercises medicine throughout cancer or exercises medicine for, for cancer. And they have some great recommendations for, for physical activity too. But so for me, lifestyle as medicine 
during active cancer treatment and then as a survivor thriver means using whatever I can from the pillars. So nutrition, physical activity, stress management, prioritizing sleep, meaningful social connections and avoiding risky substances to, to support my overall whole health and well-being. And so, so during active treatment for, for cancer, I worked with my oncologist and the dietitian oncologist to really do all that I can to support, could do to support me while I was going through through chemotherapy. And it did take making some modifications, but it really, it aligns with all that I knew before. I just had to be, I guess, extra cautious and, and really mindful. So I would, I would encourage any of your listeners who are going through active treatment to reach out and talk to their oncologist and to see if there's a dietitian who can help support them as far as optimizing their, their health. And not all, obviously not all dietitians are whole food plant-based I guess, an emphasis. However, I think that most dietitians hopefully would be supportive of hearing like, this is how the typical way that I eat, or this is how I would like to eat. And can you help me better understand this dietary pattern as it aligns with my, with my treatment or what I might need to be on the lookout for? And then being a breast cancer survivor, I eat soy every day. There's a lot of myths out there as far as breast cancer and soy, but I actually do have one of the ER estrogen receptor positive breast cancers, a really uh, very aggressive one. And I still eat soy. Um, so I had my ovaries removed. So I, and I'm on medications that block, that block me um, from, from seeing the typical amount of hormones that I would see. And I'm not on any hormone therapy. However, soy is safe. It's different. I like to think about it as the estrogen receptors. If, if they're, if estrogen that's made endogenously in the body hits the receptor, it hits it hard. It really stimulates it or pushes down on it. Or if you were giving somebody hormone replacement therapy, it's going to really sit on that receptor. Like if I were taking hormones, um, estrogen orally or, or using a patch, it's really going to hit those receptors. And so when I think of soy, what I think of it as it's a phytoestrogen or a plant estrogen. So what it does is I feel like it like gently covers it. And so it's not pushing down on it hard and doing that, like that really big, um, uh, um, stimulation of it. Um, but it all is doing, it's kind of like protecting it from that really hard stimulation and it knows which receptors to, to help to stimulate and which ones to actually kind of help protect. So I recommend, I personally, as well as recommend for others that, that people get, uh, well, I think, I think whole, whole or minimally processed soy is really beneficial for most anyone, but, um, but especially for breast cancer survivors, thrivers to get in, you know, one or two servings of soy in a whole, whole soy or minimally processed, like edamame pop that, you know, pop out those, um, the edamame out there. Great. You can steam them. And then my kids have fun popping those out too, but to try to get in some soy every day, I'm not a fan of soy isolates or supplements. I feel like there's too many unknowns as far as what it does to those receptors. So I don't recommend those. In fact, I stay away from all of those myself, but I do try to eat whole or minimally processed soy every day. Try to get in some cruciferous vegetables. I try to do my smoothie, which I'll have later today, where I get in some of my greens and some berries and some, some flaxseed and, um, and throw in some soy milk. So those trying to support um, myself with a whole food plant predominant diet, it didn't really change much. I just was, I guess, extra mindful of following the recommendations. And then for physical activity during chemo, I exercised a little bit. The physical therapist who I worked with, he would say, you should leave with more energy than you came in, go, came in with. So sometimes the exercise I would do during chemo was like the wimpiest exercise ever. However, I did feel better. I felt better knowing that I was exercising in a place where I was supervised and safe and they were looking out for me. And then I've continued to be, even though I exercised before, I've continued to be much more mindful of it being, um, of it being extra important and needing to add in some resistance as well, because I went through menopause earlier. So the importance of resistance training sleep, I did not have a problem with sleep until I, uh, until I was diagnosed and then all those worries. So I worked with somebody who helped me to better um, some cognitive behavioral therapy around insomnia. So I worked on that as well, as well as addressing stress. So just all of those different pillars, I think are so important for everyone, but anytime where we are just surviving. Anytime we're just surviving or feel like we're just barely getting by, that's 
that's often where we see that kind of paradox happen where we are the least likely to engage in stress management and those healthy behaviors, but it's when we need it the most. So when you feel like you're just surviving, thinking of how you can use lifestyle medicine to really support you in order to help you thrive again, I think is, is so important. Yeah. And, and if you're, it is right. So you kind of sink. And then the more you think about it, you just, it's harder and harder to, as you move forward, as you ruminate on it, right. All the things. And as far as those who are, maybe know someone, maybe that can be how you support someone, introduce them to someone who can provide the lifestyle measures that you're describing, which is phenomenal. As far as um, specifics to exercise now, so during treatment, you were minimalized. What do you, what do you like to do now that, because you are at higher risk now for osteoporosis and those different types of things. What do you do to alleviate some of those yes. at risk? No, thank you for asking. So I love Zumba. I do Zumba for at least 20 minutes in my bedroom in front of the TV with, with I think a group that's out of Belgium. That's just a joy to, to watch. So I watch those YouTube videos and I do Zumba. That's like my go-to, even if I can't do something else throughout the day or, or, you know, ride my bike or get to the gym. I, I at least do 20 minutes of Zumba every day. And then I have my resistance bands because as when women go through menopause, it's um, very normal for them to increase fat and to decrease lean muscle mass. And I saw that as well, even though I didn't, I really did very minimal resistance training prior to going through menopause, but I found after menopause and the literature supports that it's really important to do that resistance training as well in order, not that we're going to become bodybuilders, but just so that we maintain lean muscle mass that allows us to, to lift up, you know, lift up a, a box of groceries or to go about our day-to-day -day life. So resistance training has become more, more important to me. And I work with a personal trainer and I need to get back there to the gym and do a little bit more work with, with him as well. But Zumba is my go-to as well as some trying to do some resistance training at least two days a week. I follow the guidelines of doing at least 150 minutes of at least moderate intensity exercise every week is my minimum. There's also some great research out there looking at uh, high intensity interval training for those who it's safe to, if somebody is it's safe to do so after they've talked to their doctor, then I, I like doing a little bit of, of hit training and try. So even if I'm doing my Zumba, I'll try to like go and do like some really intense zoom uh, and then I'll, and then I'll back off a little bit. So really kind of playing with that intensity. Um, so that, I guess those have been my, my main things, my main things recently, as far as exercise. No, exercise is so very important, especially resistance training as we get older. Yes. Um, yes. Because, and, and you, again, I'm in my fifties now. And as you move into mm -hmm. <laughs> the middle age, elder yes. years, Yes. I don't, I keep, I keep reminding myself, oh yeah, I'm 52, but um, you know, the, the key thing here is that you feel good and that you do what you do and move your body. Motion is lotion yes. for the body. Yes. Um, and then very, very important. Go ahead. Yes. And then also just finding ways to incorporate it throughout the day. I've also become fascinated with the blue zones research. And you see that those people aren't typically going to the gym. They're just moving throughout the day about every 20 minutes or so. So, so even though I exercise every morning, I found that it sometimes I'll get so focused on my zoom calls or working. I love presenting. So I'll work on my PowerPoint presentations. So I try, I sit on a, on a ball chair and then my watch gives me reminders at least every hour to get up and move. And so I'll do like 45 jumping jacks or I'll, you know, turn on a song and I'll dance as I, as I go out to, to get something to drink. So trying to get that movement in throughout the day and just decreasing sedentary activity is really important as well. And then doing something that, that people enjoy, that they have fun and finding ways to, to move throughout the day, I think is so important. So some of the research around exercise snacks, I find fascinating as well as, you know, even if I can't get in 30 minutes um, throughout multiple times throughout the day, can I at least just get five minutes? So I do my exercise in the morning, then can I five minutes, take a break and just do something or even like 30 seconds. There's some research on exercise snacks, like running up and down the stairs uh, on those hour breaks. So I've been trying to do more of that too. Yeah, absolutely. And there's some interesting research with um, just doing sitting and then doing some foot lifts, right? And so that soleus muscle, um, and if you do it, granted, the study had them do it like four hours, they had significant increases in their metabolic activity. And anyway, some really yeah. good stuff there. So again, yeah. that neat, right? You know, the non-exercise um, right. activities, yeah. um, very good. And then a big one, of course, is sleep and stress. Can you tell us how those 
came about like when you said, you know, the cognitive behavior therapy, what does that mean? Can you explain what your experience was? And then how did they help you with anything else in the sleep category or stress? Yeah, no, that's great. So sleep, I knew sleep was important. In fact, even when I was, so I teach the class, a class, a university class on stress and sleep and had done so for years, even before I was diagnosed, but I knew that sleep was important, but I hadn't prioritized it as much as I should have. And so looking at, that was actually something before I would, I would sometimes kind of, you know, five, six hours, that was enough sleep or that was okay. I wasn't so adamant about getting enough sleep, but looking at the literature on sleep, especially as a cancer survivor, I am now very, very regimented on my sleep where I make sure that I get at least seven hours a night. And that becomes more challenging for many women after menopause, but I really have prioritized sleep. And so that's sleep hygiene. So that's going to bed around the same time every day and trying to wake up around the same time every day. And I just came back from the conference we were at. And so sometimes that, you know, you can't follow that exactly, but I've really tried to prioritize sleep, even though it meant going away a little earlier in one of the evenings than I wanted to one of the days when I was at the conference, really just trying to say sleep is a priority, trying to limit um, stimulation before bed. So turning off some of those different, turning off some of the devices or not using my phone really close to bed, making sure to keep my bedroom, like Dr. Beth Frady says, like a cave. So a little bit cool, very dark and uh, as quiet as possible, even if you need blackout shades, or even if you need earplugs or a white noise machine for women, a lot of women have to get up multiple times during the night, um, or at least many women have to get up at least once during the night to, to use the bathroom or to urinate, especially after menopause. And so, so trying to limit fluid intake, especially close to bedtime or to front load a little bit more with, with fluids throughout the day. Um, and getting outside, getting some nature, some, some natural light and sunlight that's beneficial. Anything we can do to have our, to help our melatonin follow that typical, that typical ebb and flow throughout the day, like it's meant to with our circadian rhythm. Um, so, so yes, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, CBTI incorporates a lot of it incorporates a lot of those sleep hygiene things. So like getting exercise throughout the day or exercise during the day, but not too close to bedtime or eating a lot of fiber. We know that microbiome health actually helps sleep. So eating a lot of fiber, fiber filled food. So a lot of our whole food plant predominant way of eating is beneficial. Um, managing our stress helps us with sleep, having a wind down ritual or routine that we that we do before bed. I've um, lately, there's some, I've been trying to take like a, a warm shower or a warm bath before because that drop in core body temperature also helps with our melatonin and with getting more deep sleep, which becomes more challenging as we age. So the person who I saw when I was going through, when I was going through chemo was really good about helping me try to change how I was thinking, because for me, I was often worried about what if, you know, what I'm, I'm going to be a cancer uh, survivor forever. And my kids, you know, what if, what if I pass away and what if my kids are left without a mom and they're only three and six and, oh my goodness. And so I would, my mind would kind of go down some of those, those dark paths at night. And so the cognitive behavioral therapist really tried to help me reframe how I was thinking about things. So it actually probably wasn't so much changing my thoughts about sleep. It was trying to help me change how I thought about life and some of the stressors. So thinking about like, I can't change the past. I can't change this diagnosis, but what I can do is I can do everything in order to be as healthy as possible in order to help me through chemotherapy. So I had as much energy as possible and then to recover. So they helped a lot with that cognitive behavioral therapy and how I was thinking about stress and about my diagnosis, which was really powerful. And that in turn helped me with sleep if I would wake up in the middle of the night with anxiety. And it still helps me. I get tumor markers every three months. And I would like to tell you that I am perfect with all my lifestyle medicine pillars and that I have no problems at all. But every time I get those tumor markers drawn, I am so anxious. And so I'm using every technique that I know. I'm trying to remind myself, do your exercise and and eat healthy foods and and you know trying to go through going through that. So even though those things help me during cancer treatment, they still help me, especially when, when I'm struggling with, um, when I'm struggling with neuropathy or when I'm struggling with the anxiety waiting for test results to come back. So, yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's 
very natural for humans to worry about the unknown and things we can't control, especially as OCD physicians. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> for sure. The more you can control the, the less stress, or at least we think it is. Um, so I'm curious as a mom, um, tell me a little bit about how did you break the news to your children, if you don't mind sharing, and then how, what was their reaction and yeah. they're, they're growing through this in the last few years. Sure, sure. So that was, so I, so the day that I had the biopsy, I got a call from the patient navigator from a nurse patient navigator. And she called and I don't think she knew I was a physician, but she reached out and said like, you know, I, you know, I heard that you were in for a biopsy today and how can I support you during this? And I remember my one question to her was, so first I told, did the, like, I don't think I need anything. I think I know the basics and I'm, but my one question was, I don't know how to tell my kids. I don't know how to tell my kids. I don't want to traumatize them any more than they're going to be traumatized seeing me go through this. Like, I don't know how to tell my kids. And she provided some resources. There were some resources, some books and pamphlets and websites. And so she was able to connect me with those. Um, I would say how I told my kids was different based upon their ages. So obviously my three-year-old didn't really know a lot. My six-year-old was able to understand more. And then I have a daughter who's now 17. She was 14 at that time. So just starting high school. And so I was uh, very open and honest, but I tried to have, I tried to use what I knew as far as the, the importance of of um honesty but then also attitude the of like we're going to get through this and um and we're going to learn and I'll be honest with you and share you know and share what I can so she was she was tremendous I think she she is interested in mental health and so I think that she just learned as I was trying to do more and more to support my own mental health I think she learned a lot of that as well and so I'm hopeful that some of that you know, being kind of transparent with like this, this is a challenge, but this is what we can do in order to be as healthy as possible and optimize what we can do. I hope that that was a good lesson for her as well, though. It was, it, it, that was the hardest thing was not having the energy, especially during chemo, um, to be able to go upstairs and kiss them good night every night. So there were some nights where I was too weak to do that. And, um, having my, my, a very supportive husband and, um, and I guess just like making those, making those changes, but that was, that was hard. That was the hard, for me, that was the hardest part was being a mom and feeling like it was really hard to keep doing all of the mom things without a lot of support. Um, I learned to, I learned about the importance of the pillar of connection. I, um, didn't realize how many people would want to reach out and try to help. And my sister started a meal train and I said, I said, you know that I whole food plant predominant. So, so a lot of people, I think, learned how to cook recipes. I mean, people were so giving and so supportive and I did need a lot of help, um, but it's, I think it's made me a better person to understand going through the experience and understanding um, that a diagnosis that, that, that really brings you in touch with, with the fragility of life and with the beauty of life Um that that is hard, but that it's all part of our journey and all part of, we all have our own struggles. So for me, I would say that going through a cancer treatment and, and diagnosis that it has led, that it was a trauma or a type of trauma. I'm not trying to say my, that my trauma was as, you know, significant as some other people who have been through different trauma, like during, during war, things like that, but it's, it is a trauma, but there can be growth that happens after it, that literature around post-traumatic growth. And, um, and so I think that that's hopefully what my kids have seen is that I've tried to show them that I would never wish cancer on anyone. And I wish it weren't part of my journey or my story, but it is, but everybody struggles. And so how do we work through that? Once again, some days I'm better than others on the days I'm waiting for my, for my tumor marker labs. I, sometimes I just need to like go out and, and, um, and do something to totally get my mind off of things, but but yeah, yeah I what? With- you're human. Are you kidding me? Yes. No. Yes. And, and acknowledging that. Right. So I think that's, right. I think that's the thing too, is when I've talked to so many cancer survivors, they say, oh my goodness, I get so freaked out too, when I'm trying to get my labs or when I have another scan that comes up. And I think that's something that we don't talk about. We don't talk about, um, we don't talk about sexual health as much as I think we probably should. That's an area where I have some expertise. And so, so even when I was going through active chemo treatment, I was working on some of my, my presentations and people would come and start to ask 
start to ask questions. And I think just being able to share um, our vulnerability and to say like, these are things a lot of people struggle with, with hot flashes or with decreased libido or interest in sex or vaginal dryness. Um, just being able to talk about these things um, or the, that we struggle with anxiety when we're having tests around, around cancer, that those are just all struggles and knowing that we're not alone, that we are in this together and that there's support. There are other people out there, I think just helps lift that burden. I know it has helped me just being able to talk with other people and know that it's not just me who feels kind of crazy the the mornings of my my tumor marker tests. No, that's and that's so completely normal and would be expected. Um you know, so it's fun that just kind of when you get to that connection piece, you mentioned people were learning how to go plant-based. Did anyone go plant-based with you or because of your story or journey? I'm just curious about that. Yeah. So I think I think many people have moved along the spectrum. So I know for me, it wasn't in all of us. And I've never, I was never somebody just growing up. I was never somebody who liked a lot of animal products. So I just naturally gravitated toward plants. Um, but I definitely have decreased the amount of processed food. So eating mostly whole, whole food plant predominant, but my family has moved along that journey with me. And I think along with that, like even my parents eat a lot of, you know, whole food plant predominant, but I, I've tried to be very open in meeting people where they are at and helping them move from wherever they are at on that standard American diet, um, continuum all the way over here to, to whole food plant predominant, which for me, I believe is the North star for most, for most people or most of us. Um, to try to help them move along there. So if that's sharing some of the food that I make or encouraging them to try different things or sharing some of the literature with them, like the, I try to say like the three F's for females, fab, fiber is fabulous for females, FFF. Like if we could just get people to eat enough fiber or follow like the basic minimum recommendation, like what a change that would make. So really trying to help people wherever they're at on the spectrum and move in the right direction. So I have had a lot of patience and um, family members and, you know, my, my whole family, we're all whole food plant based on what is, what is in our home. So we have seen a lot of movement. Um, but I always try to do, I've, Dr. Beth Frades is a dear friend, mentor, and colleague of mine. And she always says no shame, blame, or guilt. And so I try to really, to really honor that. Um, sometimes people feel like that. I think that I should be like the food police or something. And it's like, oh no, 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 no. Like food is meant to be joyful and celebrated. Let's find out how we can make plants taste even better. And then let's help people wherever they're at and move them along on a, on a joy filled journey. Yeah, uh, absolutely. 100%. So what are some of your, um, tricks of the trade for your kids as you were incorporating more plant-based with your family or did would you already have that kind of going because when we went plant-based 10 years ago mine were uh 13 15 and 18 so I'm curious to hear what what your journey was <laughs> yeah so um so I mean some of that I think like my boys probably can't remember a time when we had cow like dairy cow's milk in our refrigerator we just have we have almond and cashew and we have soy um but but I think finding, so like just letting them try different things. So, so I say sometimes they're my fruit monsters. So I have a giant bowl on the center of our island in our kitchen and it's filled with fruit. And so I think just having that, you know, my, my kids will grab a, a bowl of frozen blueberries before they'll, just because that, that's what's in our house. And so like our kids do, do, um, do Halloween and they came back with candy, but then also the candy, you know, they picked out their favorites and then it, and then it was kind of out of sight, out of mind after that. And so, um, so I would say I'm not, my kids are not perfect, but I don't want to push them to be perfect, or at least I don't feel like that's the right. I think it feels like it's right for them to always try to have healthy choices available for them and to try to find out what they like. Um, so like, like my kids like tofu that's cut up and then sometimes we'll bread it and one likes it with certain spices and one doesn't. Um, but to just try a variety of things, expose them to things. They love getting messy with me in the kitchen. So I'm just a little too messy and I'm like, I can't, we, we can't do a smoothie tonight, but like the, my boys, my six and nine-year-old boys, they love making smoothies with me where we are tossing everything in. Um, yeah, they get, they get very creative. So letting them, letting them have some control over it, letting them get involved in the kitchen, um, letting them help choose the recipes. Um, and I think to all just like in, 
yeah, like we talk about why things help us thrive. So like, if, it's not that I say like, you can't have something sweet if we're out and there's like a, a sweet treat. I just say like, you know, that's, that's going to give us some energy that might last for a really short time, but it might make us do kind of a sugar crash afterwards. And so let's think, is there something else, you know, what if you had some blueberries with it or something like that, or could we do something where it helps give us good energy that really helps us thrive? So I try to talk about it in that way of what, how food can fuel us and nourish us. Um, so yeah, yeah. I don't know that I have any really like great tricks. It's just a lot of exposure. I have food. So like my, my daughter, I'll try to help her have food that she can take with to school because what she has at her school cafeteria as a high school senior isn't, isn't mm-hmm. the best. I know she's going to see Boulder next year and she's right. super excited that they have, oh my goodness. Like I went and visited their where they have their cafeteria and they have amazing whole food plant predominant food Mm -hmm. in Boulder. So they do. Two of my kids went to see you Boulder. And yeah. So yeah, I was actually very surprised too. Emily, when did she start? Emily was in 2012 and I was even surprised. So it was 10 years ago. They actually had plant options and I was like, wow, this is actually pretty impressive. Um, Yeah, absolutely fantastic. And then I I don't want to end this conversation without discussing the paving program. Um, Can you tell us that's amazing work and I'd love to highlight what you've done. Thank you. So yes, paving the path to wellness. So the paving the path to wellness journey, when I finished chemotherapy, it was Valentine's day of 2020. And as we all know, the pandemic really started to um, started to take off in about March of 2020. And so I finished my treatment and my, my, I'm so fortunate. My cancer center had a really good wellness center, but I went to one of the survivorship programs and it did not resonate with me. I'm sure it resonates with some people, but for me, I felt once again, I felt myself diminishing. Like I will always just be a survivor. It really didn't speak to me as far as I I wanted to thrive. I wanted to flourish again. I wanted to try to do all of that. And so I went once and then vowed I would not go back. So I dropped out of the survivorship class. Um, But at that time, I'd already been working very closely with Dr. Beth Frades, who's now the president of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. She and I had been on the board of directors and um, very involved with ACLM for years and years. We were two of the first physicians trained as wellness coaches many years ago. So, um, so Beth, she said, why don't I connect you with Dr. Amy Commander, who's my dear friend. So Beth started offering paving the path to wellness, like a, a 12, um, a 12 pillar or a 12 step program of group support in person for stroke survivors. She started offering that at Spalding Rehabilitation Hospital, one of the Harvard hospitals um, years and years ago. So I want to say like 10, 11, 12 years ago. And then Amy Commander is a breast oncologist at one of the Harvard hospitals, and she had modified it for breast cancer survivors. So it was paving, but paving the path to wellness for breast cancer survivors. And they had, I believe, always met in person, but then with the pandemic, they switched and had to go virtual because of, obviously we couldn't be, they couldn't be in the same room during that time. And so Beth said, So I told her about my, my negative experience with the survivorship group, but I said, that's okay. I don't feel like I really need a survivorship group. Like I know the nutrition. I feel like I know everything and I'm in a good place, Beth. I'm, I'm good. And Beth, so why don't you just try Amy's group? And I, because I love and adore, um, Beth Frady's, I would have done anything that she recommended. So I, I tried that group and, um, joined in the middle. They were kind enough to let me join in the middle. It was being facilitated by Dr. Amy commander and I joined other breast cancer survivors. And I did know a lot of the information already as far as healthy eating and exercise and stress and sleep and social connection, but paving steps is an acronym for more than that. So it's, it's about a healthy body and that's really important, a healthier body, but it's also about a more peaceful mind and a more joyful heart along with action steps. So there are 12, um, 12 pillars. So it's paving steps is the acronym P is for physical activity, but then a is for attitude. How can our having a growth mindset, how can, um, how can the science around attitude really support our overall whole health and well-being? So attitude, I love that pillar still. V is for variety and I is for investigation. So how can you use 
the science of variety. It's not just about eating a rainbow of, of um, plants, right? A rainbow of fruits and vegetables, but also how can we use variety in physical activity? How can we use variety in our social connections to expand that? How can we use variety in the different sleep tools that we use? So, the, and then investigating what works best for you. It's great if there's research out there that shows you that this is good for most everyone. However, really getting on that individual level and being mindful of what works best for me. If I'm outside in the morning, how do I feel? And so investigation of oneself and that, that deep mindfulness. P-A-V-I-N is for nutrition, whole food, plant predominant, eat lots of whole foods, eat lots of plants, take wherever you are in the standard American diet, that continuum and, and move in the direction of, of nourishing yourself. G is goal setting. So a big part of that is, is setting goals and really using the science of behavior change because we know behavior change can be hard. So that's paving. And then steps is sleep. T is time out. So how do we take time for oneself to really work on overall health? E is energy. So I love like everyone's sort of time management, but what about energy management? And I learned about that when I was going through chemo as well. The person who I did cognitive behavioral therapy with taught me about the concept of spoons. You only have so many spoons. It's this like old story, but you only have so many spoons and that's your energy for the day. And so be mindful of how you use your spoons. Some of the information about that is in the new book, our new paving book that we came out with. Um, but um, energy management, how do we nourish ourselves as far as getting more energy in healthy ways? P is purpose. So I love that Beth connects it to to purpose and how can we really align the behaviors that we do? Uh, how can we make sure we align this with our purpose, right? We know that behavior change is not often permanent if we're doing behaviors in order to avoid something. So it is, it, it does motivate me in order to try to eat healthy and to exercise because I wanna decrease the chances of a breast cancer recurrence, right? Like, yes, I of course I want that just like everyone wants that. Um, but if I can link it to, I want to be able to thrive and I want to have enough energy to play with my kids. And I want to have enough energy and, um, to be able to do what I'm passionate about and to share the lifestyle medicine message with others. If I can link it with my passion and my purpose, I'm more likely to engage in those behaviors. So S T E P. And then the last two S's are stress. So the three S's in the sleep, one is sleep, one is stress, and one is social connections. There's two S's at the end, even though we know that steps does not usually have two S's at the end, but those are the paving steps. And that's the paving the path to wellness program that Beth Brady's developed years ago for stroke survivors and their caregivers um, in order to help them. But since then it's been modified for all different patient populations, both inside the Harvard health system hospitals and out for breast cancer survivors, um, Dr. Amy Commander is doing an amazing job continuing to lead it for breast cancer survivors and working with different populations, addressing some populations who maybe struggle with access to, to survivorship programs and really trying to make a difference there. Um, so I joined Amy's program thinking I did not need a support group. And there, it's not a typical support group. It's really a group where you learn and then you engage and you discuss things. But by the end, when it was time for those 12 weeks to be done, I had tears in my eyes too, or was fighting back tears as I said goodbye to everyone, um, because I realized how meaningful it had been to be in that community and to learn about attitude and purpose and energy and timeouts. And so um, so I was, was sold on the Paving the Path to Wellness program and, and told Amy and Beth, how do I support the work you do? Like, how do I help? And so the three of us worked together to take Beth's information that she'd done for years and years and to make a paving the path to wellness handbook. And so that's, that's all Beth Brady's work and Amy and I helped support it. And then when I finished, I, as I mentioned, I went through menopause early. And so I was feeling crummy by the end of chemo. And I thought, hopefully this is mostly chemo symptoms and not menopause. And some of it though, some of it was menopause symptoms that I was, was left with. And so I started to dig into the literature again, knowing I knew some of it, but saying like, how can I learn more about menopause and lifestyle medicine? What's out there. And I was to my dismay, I found that it was hard to find good information that wasn't really outdated, that wasn't trying to skew things and making it look like you should never even talk about chemotherapy or surgery or medication. I don't know. Those are not for everyone, but I think that we need to be able to give people evidence and let them know the pros and cons of everything and decide. So I felt like it was trying to skew things too much one way toward you should only do nutrition or you should only do medication or outdated research. And so I told Beth what I was finding and how hard I was having to dig in the literature to find these things. And she said, you know what that means? We need another book. And I said, no, Beth, I've been busy with doing these other ones and no, it's time for a break. And she, she, um, as only she could said that, you know, this is what's needed and I'll work with you. We'll partner on it. And so the amazing Dr. Amy Commander and Dr. Beth Brady's through 
a lot of meetings. This is our, our latest book and all the proceeds from the Paving the Path to Wellness books, they all go to the nonprofit. They don't go to any of us as authors. There's a Paving the Path to Wellness nonprofit organization called pavingwellness.org. So or if you go to pavingwellness.org and um, you can get our books on Amazon um, or through our publisher, Healthy Living. And, um, and um healthy learning. I'm sorry, not healthy living, healthy learning. And so, but yeah, all the proceeds go to the nonprofit organization and they're meant to, we call it a workbook, but the, the first workbook was over 400 pages. So obviously it's a workbook with a lot of content. And then this latest one, I'm so excited. I have to flip through it and show you the latest one is in, um, it's in color. And so it has, here you can see like the old ways pyramids and you can see that the ACLM, um, our publisher did a great job of having like the dietary spectrum all in color. So a great, nice. a great resource and some great, beautiful, beautiful, colorful graphics. But this is the uh, paving a woman's path through menopause and beyond, which was truly a labor of love. And, uh, and um, Beth and Amy and I wanted to do it because we felt like women who are going through menopause and beyond. It's not like everything is 55 and everything's done, right? Like menopause and beyond that whole journey as aging women, that women had a, a right to know this information and to know the evidence base behind it. And so we cover some things like vaginal dryness that are often not addressed or about sexual health and well-being in women um, through menopause and beyond, acknowledging that not everybody that, that their sexual well-being and different people express things in different ways. So um, we really tried to get into some different, some different topics that we felt like women would want to know. So anyway, that's our, that just came out. That's fabulous. And so that they can order that through pavingwellness.org or on Amazon. Yep. On Amazon. Okay. Yes, they can, exactly. Pavingwellness.org will direct them to our publisher or to Amazon, or they can just go right to Amazon and putting, uh, and put in paving and they'll find both of the books, the original workbook, which is not condition specific. And then the paving a woman's path through menopause and beyond focuses. It's all, it's all different content. It aligns, both of them align with the 12 pillars, but it's, they're two separate, two separate books. I, yeah. Wow. You know what? I'll be ordering when we're done here talking. Oh. So, so I'm curious, I, you know, I, there's, there's a few more questions. I know we're right at our 45 minutes, but um, I'm curious of those 12 pillars for you. Mm -hmm. um, two questions. What was the most meaningful? Cause you know, you walked in thinking, this is something I already understand, but to, and then for you personally, you know, the, that after the group, right, we, because at Mora, we run a similar type thing. It's a 12 week program, but we're encompassing a lot of chronic diseases. So it's definitely more, it's less specific, although we're working towards that. Um, what would you recommend for people who maybe go through something like that? And then after, where do they find their tribe, so to speak? Oh, and so we're, I think that that is, that's so important. And so I think there are a variety of ways that people can connect with a tribe. For some people, it's in the faith community. Other people might be doing volunteer work. Um, so there's a variety of different ways that they can do that. However, I do know that it's one of the, our goals with paving is to do even more to support those communities. Some of Dr. Amy Commander's her graduates of the program, which many of them live in the Boston area because they are there from, um, they go to her hospital, but they've been getting together and, and doing all different kinds of fun things. Like they've had some, some, a virtual 5k, which I was able to join in, but they've also done sailing and they've done cooking classes. And so I think that that's, um, we're, we're just a little tiny nonprofit organization right now. Um, and, and Val, um, so Valeria Tivnin is also on our board of directors. So Dr. Amy Commander, Beth Frady's, uh, Val and I are on the, the board of directors for the Paving the Path to Wellness nonprofit organization, but it is our goal as we grow in order to have more and more to support, um, to support that community because community is so, so incredibly important as you know, as well, and being in a, community where you where you're able to continue to get information and education like your your amazing website and I'm I'm sure you you know communicate and and keep all your patients educated and up to date and and um, Amy does a, a newsletter for her patients and then also we have if you do go to pavingwellness.org you can put your contact information in there and we'll send you updates and newsletters and keep you updated as well but it really is it really is um, you know finding that community finding whatever that means to you and to find your, to find your group or those people who really support and uplift you, whether that's, 
you know, in a, a community center or whether it's, um, or whether it's a certain like exercise club or a faith community or a group that volunteers or what, whatever it is, it's just so important to have that group. And it's the science tells us that it's not the number of likes on Facebook, or it's not having like a huge group of people. If somebody does have tons and tons of friends, that's great. However, it's just having at least a few strong relationships or strong connections you can go to when life gets tough, where I can pick up the phone and I can call my sister who lives, um, one of my sisters who live, both sisters live in town, or if I can reach out to that, that friend that I went to in residency. So it's not that I need a hundred friends, um, but, but, or that, that your listeners do, but that, do you have a, that kind of close the, those few close people. And that's why I picked out this picture for the cover. We picked out this picture for the cover too, is it's like, um, you know, do you have that group that can kind of help support you when, when things get, when things get tough. So, yeah. No, that's wonderful. My daughter's in residency at Boston. I'd love for her to connect oh. with Dr. Amy Kinnemander. I think that would be really cool. So maybe that'll be part of our discussion after we're done here. Um, and then, you know, I, I love the growth mindset. So, you know, Carol Dweck's work on the growth mindset. And there was a story just to show how important it is to not only for women, but children. One of them was, um, and if you've read that book, you may remember for me, that was the one thing in the book that stood out was a little, a little guy that was in their study and they were in the interventional group and they were describing how a growth mindset and how it can change your future. And when he, he really took that in and he goes, you mean, I don't have to stay stupid. Um, yeah, broke my heart. Right. So uh, this, yeah, just, is just amazing. Um, yeah, yeah so important and something that we're not, we don't, I believe that most physicians aren't trained about, or, you know, in our, in our, in our curriculum, in fact, often as physicians, I feel like we're trained to be almost extra critical of ourselves because we want to do the best we can for our patients. And so we're, you know, we, we try to have these standards that are much higher than, than may be humanly possible. And so teaching, teaching healthcare providers about the importance of self-compassion um, and Kristen Neff's work and growth mindset. Yes, like all of this, the Carol Dweck's work. So, so important to teach it, teach it, and then to, to internalize it ourselves and to work on it. It's a, it's a journey um, for me as well as I think for, for everyone, but to internalize that and then to share that with others. And of course, especially, especially children too, so powerful, but I do think wherever we're at on the journey, you know, most people could, could use some time to reflect upon their attitude around, um, you know, purpose and how that aligns with their daily habits and, and all of that. It's just so, um, as you know, so interconnected. Right. And, and you know, you know, really not focus on the perfection, like you had mentioned, because I feel like then people start thinking and yes. worrying about, I'm not doing enough to be yes. perfect. And then they're self-defeating and <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like this vicious cycle, but you, it's a balance. Um, yes. Absolutely yeah. true. 100%. Well, this is, this has been fantastic. Is there any last bit of advice you'd like to share with any of our audience or things that you feel like we didn't touch upon? That's an important point that in your story or anything. Yeah. So just know that you're not alone. Um, reach out. There are others, others that are struggling with things that you're struggling with too. So you're not alone. Reach out and get support. And then also for anybody out there who is a healthcare provider uh, or is involved with health systems. So um, physicians uh, or nurse practitioners, PAs, wellness coaches, people in public health, OTs, PTs, pharmacists, dentists, everyone. Um, health systems, people who are involved in wellness, continue to come to the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. I was part of it when it was so small. I think before we had a hundred members, now I'm the secretary on the executive board, uh, along with both Amy and Beth and um, on the board of directors. And and I feel like it's such a galvanized force for change as soon as Ben, I guess, likes to say it's a place that brings together people who are, are um, purposeful and passionate and want to make the world a better place like, like yourself. And so I would just invite everyone who is interested to check out the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. I love that we're doing work with, with the HEAL initiative, which is health, health equity achieved through lifestyle medicine to really address those health disparities to try to tackle that, you know, why is it that some of us can get access to this and some of us can't? Um, or why is it so hard, right? Like, why is it so hard? It shouldn't be this hard to get access to this kind of, kind of care. It would be, it would be malpractice for somebody not to have told me about my options of a mastectomy and 
chemotherapy, but why is it not seen as just as egregious if someone doesn't talk to them about the importance of eating healthy and exercising after active treatment? So we have a lot of work to do to get this to everyone. And so oh. if you're healthcare provider, I'd encourage you to check out the American College of Life Summits. We over, have over 9,000 members now. So Amazing. Yes. <laughs> so cool. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. And yes, it's, and it's funny because people say, you know, it is so hard for to get access, but to build the system that allows access is also very difficult. And yes. I, I will tell you, I'm in the trenches of that. Yes. And um to use the Medicare, the Medicaid, and the insurance that people are paying for, their employers are paying for, and coming up with ways to allow the talent, the physicians and the practitioners to reach those patients who would like access, even if they're in remote Alaska, Wisconsin, yes. Florida, yes, it doesn't yes. matter, right? So it's so very yes. important. Um, and it really does need to start with innovation from the bottom up because I, I think it takes yes. too long and too many lives are at stake. And like you said, it is malpractice not to provide these things. So yes, 100%. I hundred percent agree. Why is it that why is it that insurance companies will pay for multiple surgeries and um, all these rounds of chemotherapy? Yet when you get to a survivorship program, like I feel like survivorship programs should be covered for everyone. Right. And so um, anyway, this, I'm so thankful for the work that you're doing and that ACLM is doing because mm. yes, we need to address access and get this and get this out there. And I agree, we can't, we can't wait. So the ACLM is addressing it at so many different levels. And I love partnering with you and with others who are passionate to get this work done. Oh, well, thank you so much, Michelle, for sharing your information and your story and your journey and your passion and everything that you're doing. Because I really think that will change lives and more and more people share this information and people like yourselves who, you know, through all of your um, time that you suffered from the breast cancer and taking it and evolving it into a story of healing and thriving. Um, I, I think it's wonderful. So thank you again for your time today. Oh, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to connect with you and with your, with your listeners as well. Thanks for watching, and I hope you enjoyed that video. Before you go though, please hit the subscribe and alert buttons so you don't miss out on any of the amazing content we're working so hard to provide you. We upload a new episode of Health & Mora with Dr. Lori Marbus every Friday. Now, if you'd rather listen to the podcast, you can find us on all the major platforms such as iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and even Spotify. If you're looking for amazing resources to help you start and sustain a plant-based diet, exercise, recipes, or anything wellness, we got you covered there too. Because at Mora, we actually provide physician-led support groups to help people live happier, healthier lives free of metabolic disease. Don't forget to check out our website at mora.com. And thanks again for watching.